This has always been one of my favorite passages in that it is one of the most sarcastic passages in the Bible. You see, you see what Paul is like when he's on his last nerve, and it reminds you he was an ordinary guy who'd been given extraordinary gifts and, and, and a, a mission that we too have been given. Uh, and he talks about fools here. And, and of course, the biblical definition of a fool from God's point of view is, is one who boasts in himself. Who, who would stand up and say, look at me and how righteous I am. We see that uh, upsetting Jesus throughout his ministry. Uh, and his opponents, Paul's opponents, living without the Spirit, these false apostles or super apostles as he calls them, have been boasting according to the flesh continually. And the Corinthians will listen to them. And yet the Corinthians won't really let Paul's words sink in. And that's what sort of pushes him. You see, thinking of Proverbs... There are a number of times when the book of Proverbs, which gives us wisdom from God, almost seems to contradict itself. And you say, oh my goodness, we need wisdom to apply the writings about wisdom, and we're completely reliant on God for this. One of the most obvious, clear examples is from Proverbs 26, 4-5. It begins with, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. In other words, if you're talking to me foolishly, and I say, I'll just sink to your level. I've become like you. Don't do that. But it's followed immediately with, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, so two, there's tension here. Two pieces of advice, uh, contradictory pieces. And I think there's something to be said about the order of those two things, by the way. Start out not answering the fool according to his folly. St. Paul has tried that. And then eventually you may find yourself in a position where you have to say, all right, I'll play. And that is what Paul is doing here. You guys listen to fools all day long? You think I'm a fool? Fine, I'll act like a fool. You being so wise, you should understand. Of course, this is biting sarcasm that really would have gotten under the skin of these sophisticated, wise Corinthians. He says, let's measure credentials. I feel foolish doing it, but I've tried everything else. So I will answer a fool. I'll become a fool in order to get through your thick skull. He even gives a little disclaimer. I'm not speaking as Christ. This is not, you know, it's not that this isn't inspired. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I've told the churches, emulate me as I emulate Christ. Pause that. I'm not emulating Christ right now. Don't emulate me necessarily unless you absolutely have to. But Paul is disgusted with the church in Corinth in this one area, and it's that they are being far too tolerant. Now that strikes us as, wait, oh, how can you say that? The ultimate of all values and, and, and the, the highest good is tolerance. And in many cases, tolerance is a very good thing. But you do not want to tolerate wickedness. In the church, you do not want to tolerate sin. We do not want to tolerate false teaching because, as Jesus said, a little bit of leaven will move through the whole lump. If you don't believe me about tolerance, just see Jesus rant against the church in Thyatira in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Being far too tolerant of wickedness and false teaching. And not only are they tolerating the, the heresy that's being taught by these super apostles, they're tolerating this disgraceful treatment from them as well. And so he's disgusted that they've put up with these arrogant, domineering, false teachers who, who pressed them for money, told them, you can't really understand the scriptures and the truth. You need to go through us because we're wise and sophisticated. Who took advantage of them and insulted them and then still demanded that they give and give. And he says, if, if it will help, I will speak like one of them. 
And he knows that if he gets into this kind of measuring contest of whose righteousness is better, he actually will win, even from a human point of view. For you bear it, he says, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. This, this kind of treatment, this spiritual abuse, we might even call it, is something that Jesus encountered as well. He, he ranted and raved against the scribes and Pharisees for this same thing. In Mark 12, we read, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now contrast that with what we read in 1 Peter just a couple months ago when he's talking to pastors and ministers and he tells them, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Paul will arrive and he, he doesn't charge them money. He says, I'll make my own way because I know these false teachers will charge you. And the false teachers say, you see, he's no leader. And Paul says, I'm a, I'm a servant, a servant leader, an example. And, and there's five verbs here in increasing intensity as he describes what these false apostles have been doing to the Corinthians. They degraded them. They devoured them. They defrauded them. They derided them. They defamed them. And despite all that, the Corinthians still defend them. It's kind of this situation where you, you've got Oslo syndrome. Is that what it is? Helsinki syndrome? If you look at uh, his summary that he was too weak, you see that the sarcasm has gone so deep, he doesn't even know. I, this is what you want. I'm sorry. I was too weak to come along and slap you in the face. I was too weak to push you down with the heel of my boot and make you do what I wanted you to do. Is that what you wanted when you bought into this idea that I am strong in, in writing, but when I show up, I'm kind of unimpressive? You wanted me to be domineering and abusive? He's thinking like a fool, but he keeps slipping into non-foolish thinking. Looking at verse 30, we see kind of the crux of the argument here. He says, If I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You think I'm too weak to act like these super apostles? Being weak is what Christ demands of us. You think I'm foolish and they're wise because of how they're trained in these Greek schools? Being a fool is what Christ demands from us. Being a fool for Christ, a fool from the world's point of view. As he wrote in 1 Corinthians, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the wickedness of God is stronger than men. And earlier in the same chapter, for the preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But unto us which are being saved, it is the power of God. Now I don't know if there's really any point in putting a title and name on sermons and putting it in the bulletin. I don't know how often you look at it, but, but look at this one because I'm especially proud of it. It's called, Don't Pity the Fool. Right? You'll get it later maybe. But he says, yes, I'm a fool, but this is where I want to be, a fool for Christ. Yes, I'm weak, but that does nothing but emphasize and magnify in my mind and in my eyes how strong and powerful 
Christ is. So if I got to boast, I'll boast in my weakness. Now compare that with the kind of super apostle attitude, which is still with us today and very prevalent, that says, well, I don't want to brag, but ever since I started following Christ, my teeth are wider, I've gotten three raises, my band's really taken off, you know, every day is like a Friday, I'm living my best life, I look great, I feel great, I got health and wealth and happiness. If we're honest, what is the picture in our minds of a victorious Christian? What does it look like? For many, many in America and in the West, it is more a picture of these super apostles than of the true apostle who says, let me tell you about my weakness, my trials, and my struggles. This is so serious that Paul goes to an incredible extreme in making these claims like a fool. Are they servants of Christ, he says? I'm a better one. And then, parenthetically, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Elsewhere, Paul has compared his pedigree as a Jew with those Judaizers, saying, look, I I can play this game too, but let me keep your emphasis on grace and your eyes focused on grace, not on works. But here... He says, I'm a better follower of Christ. I've done more for the kingdom. It's cost me more. And let me start running the list. And he doesn't point out how eloquent he is or where he went to school, although he has plenty to, to brag about. He doesn't point out that he was a student of Gamaliel, the famous rabbi. He doesn't show how many people follow him in person or on Twitter. He doesn't say, look how J.C. Penney's handsome I am in my headshot. No, he says, look what I've endured. I'm talking like a madman. In the King James, it says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. That's a very wooden translation. He wants to check off all the boxes of how he has followed Christ regardless of what it would cost. And even in this talking as a madman, he doesn't have in mind to magnify himself, but to glorify Christ and to build up the church in Corinth, which is being led astray. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. 39 lashes. That was a standard synagogue punishment for blasphemy or heresy or grievously breaking the law. They would get that from Deuteronomy 25, which put limits on punishing people. It said, if someone is punished corporately with with, with lashes, no more than 40. And in true kind of pharisaical fashion, they said, to make sure we don't accidentally break the law, we'll limit it to 39. So you would actually get hit 13 times with one of these three-pronged, what they call a treble lash. Five times that. Imagine what Paul's back must have looked like. And then imagine the super apostles walking around with their tans and their abs with no shirts on. Maybe a toga. Three times, beaten with rods. So if the standard synagogue Jewish punishment is the 39 lashes, being beaten with rods is the standard Gentile punishment for creating an uprising or some kind of riot, which Paul was often accused of, because when you preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit starts working, as you see at Pentecost, things get kind of rowdy sometimes. And sometimes his, his opponents would even purposely get people all worked up and then say, oh, he did it. And so he'd been beaten with rods. In Acts 16, we have the account of Paul being beaten by a Roman magistrate at Philippi. And remember, he points out, this is illegal because I'm a Roman citizen. And all the same that happened to him three times. And if you went even further, 
You might be stoned to death. That was the most common form of execution. And not many people can put that on their resume. Yeah, one time I was stoned. And you'll remember that he stood up and said, well, that was no fun, and walked off. Even though he was seemingly dead, God was at work. He's running through this stuff, bragging about it, and feeling like a fool. But he knows he has to do it because it's the only way to get through to those in in Corinth. He's been shipwrecked. Who's shipwrecked? Three times! He's sailing all over the ancient world. He had what you might consider, I guess, a run of bad luck. Three times shipwrecked. And if you're thinking of Acts 27, when he's a prisoner and he warns the centurion, this whole thing's going down and they don't listen, and they are shipwrecked and go to the island, that happens after he wrote this. So Paul's shipwrecked at least four times in his life. Who gets shipwrecked four times and who brags about it? A madman. But this is strategic. Because boasting about my weakness... You boasting about your weakness leads us to boasting about his strength, inevitably, as we look back at how he has cared for us, to to boasting about the power of his grace in our lives. He goes on, oh, I've been in danger of robbers. And when you read the book of Acts, you see he went through Antioch and Pisidia, which was notorious for bandits and robbers, and it was a very dangerous area to be, as were all the mountains that divided the highlands of Asia from the sea. And and he was constantly just running into hardship after trial after tribulation for the cause of Christ. That's common when we look back through the annals of church history. The the man after whom our church is named, Adoniram Judson. We've talked many times about the things that he faced. He built a church. He learned the language. He spent years translating the Bible into Burmese. Still nobody saved. So there's that, that kind of mental, what am I doing wrong, wait which Paul will talk about in a minute. And then, after a lifetime of preaching the Bible, translating the Bible, two years on death row in a Burmese prison, the death of three wives and seven children, he still only had a few dozen converts among the Burmese. And yet, looking back at his life near the end, he didn't say, wow, I do everything different. He said, this is what I've endured for the cause of Christ. And if you go here you know how much fruit that ministry eventually is born. You know that today, right when we're done, they're going to come flooding in. One congregation of Burmese Christians. That they are, and they are so full of passion for the Lord Jesus. We know that he said, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. In other words, you guys are also part of my hardship. I'm worried about you. You're you're, you're in danger of going astray, of losing the gospel and turning away from the Christian faith. And all the other churches, Jerusalem, where they're being persecuted, I'm worried about those who are poor and and, and aren't able to care for their, their sick and their hungry. And all of these things are weighing on Paul's mind. And he says, listen, I, I actually bear the burdens of your suffering. Verse 29, who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? So when the, the Christians at Corinth, they fall, when, they, when they're weak in their faith, he feels that weakness, he feels that sting. And when they're led astray, he feels that indignance. He has, I think the, the NIV says there's a burning inside of him. And that's, of course, what brings all this kind of anger and sarcasm out. He will not bear it. A good shepherd won't stand by while his sheep are led astray. 
So Paul experienced the shame of being deceived, the indignation against anyone who would lead them astray. We said a few weeks ago, even our English word compassion comes from com, it means with, pati, which means to feel. So to feel with, that's compassion. Jesus looks out, he's moved by compassion. It means he sees hungry people and he feels hungry with them. He's, he's broken people, he feels broken with them and he's moved by it and the result is mercy. And every pastor, every elder, every teacher, every deacon must be compelled by this same thing. John Calvin said, care generates sympathy, which causes the minister personally to enter into the feelings of all his people as if he stood in their position. And Paul is standing in the positions of many, many suffering Christians, Christians in danger of being led astray, Christians who are leading others astray, and it is wearing on him. Of course, he's not handsome and smooth like the super apostles. And then there's this odd little tag at the end of the passage. After he's made his point about the list of sufferings, he says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he is blessed forever. He knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. End of section. That's always struck me as very bizarre. And, and at some point, I think I decided that Paul was writing about all these things he'd endured, and he made his point, and then all of a sudden went, oh yeah, there was that one super cool thing that happened where I narrowly escaped in the basket. I should write about that. It's described in Acts chapter 9 in a little more detail, if you're curious about it. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what he's writing about is another example of weakness and humiliation. Where did this happen? Damascus. And why did Paul go to Damascus? He went in strength and power as one who would persecute the church. He walked in head high. I'm here. He, he, that's, that was his thought as he went on the road toward Damascus. Jesus had other plans. Knocked him down, made him blind, changed his heart. And so now Paul, who walked towards Damascus, ready in his power to cause other people to bend to his will, leaves under cover of darkness, hiding in a basket. It's humiliating, but it also is providential. It shows that God has been caring for him through all of these sufferings. Reminds me a bit of the escape of Joshua and Caleb from Rahab's window. You remember that? They were hiding. There were people looking for them as well. The king was on to them. And Rahab let them out with a rope because her house was built into the wall. There are many examples of this sort of providential close call and escape throughout church history as well. I think of this story of Menno Simons who founded the Mennonites. He was being hunted much of his life. And in 1542, Dutch authorities announced a reward, 500 guilders. What would you guys do with 500 guilders for his capture? And somehow he still escaped arrest for the next two decades. And he would travel around with his wife and his kids. And in his journal, he lamented in 1544 that, quote, he could not find in all the countries a cabin or a hut in which we could be put up in a safety for a year or even half a year. There was nowhere they could stop. They were continually on the run. And there's story after story about near misses, where they were almost captured. Once he was apparently traveling by stagecoach, and a group of armed horsemen with a, in, in hand, they had the warrant for his arrest, pulled up. And, and as it happens, uh, Menno was sitting outside the coach next to the driver. And the, and the guy who was in charge of the armed horsemen, he says, is Menno Simons in there? 
knew a Mennonite would never lie. So he just asked the question. Menno put his head in and said, they want to know if Menno Simons is in there. They all said, no, he's not. He said, no, they say he's not in there, and off they went. Luther himself was kidnapped by his own friends and stashed in Wartburg Castle so he wouldn't be kidnapped by his enemies and handed over to the Inquisition. John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, on and on goes the number of people who saw persecution as a mark of faithfulness, that God was with them, not that God was against them. I think we tend, when things start to go wrong or things get difficult or somebody turns against us, to say, oh, we must not be, God's closing this door. He'll open a window somewhere else. When Paul talked about a wide open door for ministry, the next thing he said was, there are many tribulations. And so we have to remember that often the right way is the hard way. It's the way that that leads you to put together a list like Paul has here that involves difficulty, trial, and hardship. Jesus said in the the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is how we view the kingdom of God. This is how we view the road, the narrow road that lies ahead of us. I've quoted John Calvin. Let me quote another great church father, Toby Mack. You know Toby Mack? In his great work called Unstoppable, which plays Unstopping in our house on repeat, my son's CD player. He writes, We make our moves in mysterious ways. We'd rather burn up than stick to the shade. Not of this world, so we live on the run. We keep our eyes set on what is to come. It's a different way of viewing the world. We're, we're on the run. We're, we're always thinking ahead. Not three steps, not five steps, but all the way into eternity. And we see the world differently. And we see struggles differently. And we see those who would stand up and say, look, Jesus is a way to happiness and health and wealth and all your dreams come true as false teachers, pseudo-apostles those who should be refuted, not lightly, but with all the fire of Paul's sarcasm. There's an assumption, I think, wrapped up in in the trend of, of American pastors or British pastors going from affluent parts of the world to trained pastors in persecuted parts of the world, third world countries, or, or two-thirds world as they call it, and I, I was told by one of my missions professors in seminary, he, he was very tied into indigenous populations. He said, you know, you show up and you've got all these, these pastors in their polo shirts saying, this is how it's done, take notes. And they thought, wow, they were really, really hungry for what I had to say. No, they're just really, really polite in many parts of the world. I was asked once if I wanted to go to Haiti, as it happens, not to help rebuild, but to train the pastors there. And I said, I'll go to Haiti to be trained by the pastors there because they have a, a list of accomplishments and trials they've endured that looks a lot more like Paul's than mine does. Now, if we're going to share resources to encourage, to help with work, that's one thing. And we think about Paul sending the, the men with the offering to the church in Jerusalem. We go there, we learn from each other. Here's what we can offer, and what can we learn from you? And I think that's the relationship we've established with both of the refugee congregations here. How can we learn from each other? And when we see that we're going off saying, oh, no, 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 what we have is ideal. 
But we have, we have you know, no struggles, no troubles, and, and when we get a tiny little hint that there might be something we can call persecution, we blow our stacks and we blow our minds and we, and we freak out. That's where you should be. That's not the biblical view of the church. We should be learning from those who are being persecuted, not the other way around. And, you know, there will always be room for full-time missionaries who go off there will always be room for the Jenny Pazinskis of the world who go on behalf of the church and do great work. But I also think it's a wonderful trend that we're seeing more and more churches funding nationals saying, well, you're a, a pastor in that part of the world. You know that part of the world. You know your congregation. How about we just supply you with what you need to do what you know you need to do and keep our hands out of it? All of this comes back to the idea that the gospel... Is a, is a message of salvation that's free, but not cheap. That it costs Christ much. And he says to us, count the cost. I was just sharing the gospel with a young man yesterday. And I said, it's weird. Jesus says this is a free gift. And at the same time, he says, count the cost. Because he's asking us to follow him in our newly gained freedom with a cross on our backs. A.J. Gossip, whom I read off and on, wrote in the 1920s, this little paragraph about how intense it is to follow Jesus. He says, no doubt the gospel is quite free, as free as the Victoria Cross, which anyone can have who is prepared to face the risk, but it means time and pains and concentrating all one's energies upon a mighty project. You will not stroll into Christ-likeness with your hands in your pockets, shoving the door open with a careless shoulder. This is no hobby for one's leisure moments, taken up in intervals when we have nothing much to do, but put down and forgotten when our life grows full and interesting. It takes all one's strength and all one's heart and all one's mind and all one's soul given freely and recklessly and without restraint. This is business for adventurous spirits. Others would shrink out of it. And so Christ had a way of pulling up would-be recruits with sobering and disconcerting questions of meeting applicants, breathless and panting in their eagerness, by asking them if they really thought they had the grit, the stamina, the gallantry required. For many, he explained, begin, but quickly become cowed and slink away, leaving a thing unfinished as a pathetic monument to their own lack of courage and of staying power. Now there's some truth in that, but the problem with it is that it finds the perseverance and strength to carry on and be a disciple, and do the work of the kingdom inside me, my stamina, my grit, my adventurous spirit. Well, Paul says to Timothy that the goal for us is to live, quote, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Again, there's that tension. A tension that says, yeah, it's free, but it costs. Yeah, it's a crazy adventure, but it's often an adventure that's lived out going about your daily life in a cubicle, not on the front lines. And we see that in that, that Mark 10 passage. Jesus hints at this, this same tension when he says, yeah, you've given up all sorts of stuff to follow me, and nobody who's given up all these things, let me read it uh, uh, word for word, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. For many who are first will be last. He says, yeah, you're going to get rewards, but with persecution. There's a tension here in following Jesus. 
And I think it's a tension that we have to live in, not try and resolve. And we live in it by remembering that when Paul was finally pushed to the edge at his last nerve and he snapped and he said, I'll tell you how great a Christian I am, he pointed to his weakness, his suffering, and his trials. A friend of mine named Barnabas Piper, he's John Piper's son, he's, he's a bit of a, a satirist, funny guy. He, he recently wrote a kind of parody version of this passage. And it was called, If St. Paul Suffered Like American Christians. 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25, the ARSV, American Revised Suburban Version. Five times I received verbally abusive tweets. Three times I was handed a latte in a red cup. Once I was misrepresented on a blog. Three times I was flipped the bird for my fish bumper sticker. I've spent a night and a day at my daughter's dance recitals where they played secular music. On frequent efforts to be a witness, I face dangers from disinterested people, dangers from awkward conversations, dangers in my upper middle class subdivision, dangers in the carpool lane, dangers on Facebook, and dangers amongst my cubicle mates. Often without my evangelical echo chamber, ill at ease around non-Christians, and lacking my Caruso t-shirt. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for my Instagram account. And that may be a little harsh, but Paul is a little harsh here as well. And let that harshness remind us that there is something difficult in the Christian life. And when there's not, we should stop and ask ourselves, why not? Sometimes it means we're just in, simply in a season where God is giving us a time of rest. We see that happening even in the, the Roman persecution of the church. You think it was all nonstop, but when you drill in deep, you see there were times of rest that God said, here's a reprieve. But sometimes it's because we have compromised. We've walked away from a gospel that says, take up your cross and follow me, and wandered into the, the territory of the super apostles who say, let your own life, your own happiness, your own satisfaction, your own great name drive you, and God will be your co-pilot. I, I would encourage you to reread this passage sometime this afternoon. It's, it's kind of a difficult one, even as you read it, to, to work out the grammar and things, because Paul's just he's typing so fast, as it were. But read it again and ask yourself, might he be talking to me today? Do I need to, to realign the way I view struggles and trials in the Christian life? Do I need to start praying each day, Lord, work on my heart so that I do count it pure joy when people lie about me, when people throw things at me, whether literally or figuratively, when people make up false stories and, and mock and laugh at me, do I need you to work on my heart so that I too can say I will boast, if I have to, about the things that show my weakness? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that this passage is, is not one easy to preach and is, is rarely preached. Lord, I thank you uh, for the, the requirement of preaching through a book of the Bible that causes us to stop and look at unusual texts like this one. And Lord, as we, we think about Paul boasting like a fool in all of his weakness, we pray, Lord, that we too could look at our weakness. And as we look next week as, at a specific situation where Paul sees his weakness showing him God's strength, may you give us comfort and encouragement when we are struggling reminding us that you are using these things to refine our hearts as a, a fire refines gold, 
that these are the things that your son Jesus endured. And Lord, when we walk in his footsteps, we will endure them too. And Lord, may we somehow count it as pure joy. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.